Welcome to today's podcast. Today, Chris talks with Deacon Mark Niegebauer. He has been interviewed on EWTN's The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi and Peter Herbeck's The Choices We Face. He shares with us his incredible journey as a former Orthodox Jew who came to encounter Christ as a promised Messiah and was led into the Catholic Church in 2009. He also answers some hard-hitting questions about how Catholics can effectively witness to our faith to other Jews. You're not going to want to miss this one. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. To the Theology of the Buddy Podcast, Episode 10. number uh trying this again hello hello deacon mark hello there how's your day going fine thanks how's your day oh it's been a crazy day but it's uh it's been good it's been good thanks for being willing to to re-record this this is our second run at this <laughs> we had technical yeah. issues with the first one so i really appreciate you uh coming back on the show and and recording with us it's, this is great no problem awesome so part of the reason why i reached out to you in the beginning um was because of the fact that first we we had met when we were uh at the carmelite congress uh this uh secular discalce carmelite congress uh this past fall in toronto and i got to know you a little bit there but then come to find out that you've got you have more of a history than just carmel <laughs> and uh mm-hmm. so um i I really love your story. So um, would you be willing to take a couple moments and just kind of share uh, your story going back, um, starting from uh, when you were a child? Sure. Um, I was raised in, in a, a pretty a culturally traditional home. Um, a, a, in a, I, w- I don't know if I would call it conservative Judaism. My grandparents were pretty orthodox. My parents were... Uh, a little bit more liberal, but I'd say we call it conservative in a sense, that the synagogues that we would attend would be conservative synagogues. Um, uh, my father was not particularly observant at all. He, he was a Holocaust survivor, still is alive actually, survivor of Auschwitz. And for him, God died in the concentration camps. I mean, there is no God because he allowed 6 million Jews to die. Um, so he had given up. He had given up on God. My mother, on the other hand, uh, came from the Ukraine, and although her family went through what was called the pogroms after World War One and between the wars, she did have a, a faith in God and a prayer faith in God, and she would always uh, talk to me about who that God exists. And um, it was quite interesting, actually. She would say sometimes, "Remember," she'd say, "Mark, remember that Jesus was a Jew." Mm. which I thought was really interesting. She'd say those things to me. Wow. Anyway, so I was raised, yeah, not only that, she had friends who were actually sharing the faith with her. I think they were Baptists when she came to Toronto. So she had a number of books. And one of the books she had was a book called The Nazarene, written by this Jewish author called Shalom Ash. And his books were originally written in Yiddish, which is a German dialect for, East, for Central and Eastern European Jews. Um, and they were about the gospel, and he wrote this book called The Nazarene, about Yeshua, about Jesus. So I had an English copy of it, and I read it one day, and it really, really, really affected me. At the same time, my mother, who was a little more open-minded, 
So just that I, we go here, handled Messiah and the words and the music really impacted me and uh, my high school friends. So we were already sort of being led through different circumstances in different ways, or I was anyway, toward Jesus. And even though I was quite involved with the, uh, the, the conservative synagogue and had a very strong uh, Jewish identification, a Jewish identity and lifestyle, I was even considering becoming a rabbi at one point. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, truly. Um, and we had this joke that my cousin would become a cantor and I'd be the rabbi and my father would build the synagogue. And my, cousin <laughs> became, my cousin did become a cantor, but I never became a rabbi. <laughs> but anyway, yes, uh, God had other plans in the sense that um, I was always pretty spiritual and questioning, you know, where is God? I believed in a personal God, of course. And, was involved in the synagogue, and in the synagogue there were these Jewish believers who were praying that they would witness to somebody and bring somebody to faith in Yeshua. And guess who that was? They basically, I had came over to their house. They were sharing messianic prophecy with me. I didn't hear a word that they said, but what happened was that God opened my eyes, scales came off my eyes, and I knew instantly that Jesus was the Messiah and he was Lord. Wow. I couldn't tell you if it was by reason. It was nothing reasonable about it. It was totally by faith, and it happened. That's wow. all I can say. And if you look at here, so the rest of my story, you'll see that it was all pretty uh, revelatory in a sense that God broke through in the most uh, supernatural ways, revealing to my heart and my mind truth. Anyway, I, went, I started going to the local Messianic Jewish congregation, of which these two young men were part of. And my family found out, and they were absolutely horrified that I would be a believer in Jesus. And, of course, understandably, they reacted very strongly, as did the whole family. It became a very hard time in the sense that I was ostracized and from family events. And, um, and my father, particularly, was pretty, pretty hard on me about it. He was just very angry at God. So he took it out on me, understandably, and that's fine. And we have to understand those things when people have experienced, you know, for my dad, Hitler was a Catholic, you know, Hitler was a Christian and he was baptized Catholic, but that doesn't mean he was a a real believer. Of course not. Right. So he didn't know any better. So here's his son becoming one like that, so to speak. Right. Anyway, so uh, we joined the local Messianic Jewish congregation. I went to university. I studied Greek and Hebrew, and um, as a believer, and that sort of became my Bible college. Study and understanding the scriptures, which was amazing for me. And after a few years, I decided it was time to move out of my parents' house. After I got my degree, moved out. My wife at the same Afghan congregation. We were married, and we continued in the congregation for a long time. I was involved preaching and teaching and ministering. You name it. It was um, it's a Messianic Jewish congregation, which is very evangelical, really, in its theology, its practice. It's still culturally Jewish, but everything is seen in the fulfillment that Jesus fulfilled the feast Passover. He fulfilled, as we understand that too, as Catholics, uh, he had fulfilled all the Jewish holidays. So we practice them with that view, which which was quite a, a good experience. Uh, while I was uh, in that Messianic congregation, at the same time, a big outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened at a local vineyard church called the um, Toronto Vineyard. And um, I, uh, I was the interim pastor of that congregation, the Messianic congregation at the time, and I started preaching a kind of a charismatic renewal kind of Holy Spirit message. They didn't like it too much, so we left. So after 18 years in the Messianic congregation, after 18 years of being a leader in the Messianic Jewish movement in Canada, uh, we moved to this large evangelical charismatic church where we learned issues like inner heal, concepts of inner healing, ministry, uh, prophetic um, revelation through uh, personal prophecy, corporate intercession and prayer uh, prophecy, and also men's ministry. So I was quite involved with this evangelical church. But what happened at the evangelical church, I also got involved in contemplative prayer, and I didn't know what it was. And we had a speaker one time come to this evangelical church, and he was talking about his time at a Benedictine monastery, and he was talking about the Liturgy of the Hours. And he was quoting all these uh, writers on contemplative prayer, and they were all 
Catholic. He was, he was quoting Henry Nouwen. He was quoting Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. He was quoting all these people, and I thought, wow, these are Catholics. I was a little bit surprised. But I was so drawn to contemplative prayer. Um, at the same time, somebody said, well, why don't you read this book? They said you should, you should read this book called The Fire Within by uh, Father Thomas Dubay. He's since passed on. And I, it, uh, I picked up this book, and I, I was, it was already on contemplative prayer, you know. And I literally felt like there was a fire in my soul as I was reading this book. I read it for a year, and I remembered, and I looked up online, and I realized that although writers that I'd heard were Catholic, and this, these writers, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, were also Catholic, and I was beginning to wonder, could anything good come out of the Catholic Church? <laughs> I mean, after all, they had they'd given up on their Jewish identity, picked up Greco-Roman traditions, and they invented a, a form of Christianity that was not the same as the apostolic period. This is what we were taught, and so what I believe, right. but I was so drawn by this book. And I started doing online research about discalced Carmelites, and I discovered there were communities here in Toronto. And I wasn't Roman Catholic, but I was so drawn to the writings of these two saints. And I discovered Edith Stein, Teresa Benedict of the Cross, as you know, she's Jewish herself. She died in Auschwitz concentration camp in 1942. Um, and I was drawn by these things. And then John, uh, John Paul II passed away. And my wife and I were watching the television and we were weeping, feeling that our own Pope had died. And we said, how's that possible? We're not Catholic. Um, but we were so moved by his passing and by his life. And it, 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 it just um, it impressed us so deeply. And yeah, and you have to understand, Chris. Everything I feel very, I feel deeply and spiritually. Uh, these con- these things. I said, let me investigate the Catholic Church a little further. So I picked up the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I read it. I wanted to know just for fun, is it safe to be Jewish in the Catholic Church? And people probably will laugh at that right now, because obviously we know that the roots of the Church are Jewish. But truthfully, um, it was the Catholics who, in other other than other groups, of course who were one of our greatest persecutors in the past in European history. Right. So I looked, sorry? I just yeah. said right, so I yeah. Checked, yeah, so I checked the catechism, and I found it was faith. <laughs> and the roots of the faith were Jewish, and it was explicit throughout the catechism, especially the catechism of paragraph number 1096A. And it talks about um, the examination of Jewish liturgy even today can help Catholics understand their own faith. And, and it talks about the Eucharistic prayer and the Lord's prayer coming from Jewish liturgy. So I was really impressed with this. I said, let me read what else there is. I started reading encyclicals by John Paul II, started reading Vatican II documents. And um, I was really, really drawn. It was basically a combination of all these experiences of believing in Jesus, of course, and, under, and, and understanding the Word of God, of course, but being drawn in a very deep contemplative way in, in my innermost being where I'd never been touched before. I was very hungry for that. And the Catholic uh, literature and the Catholic um, theology and the Catholic writers really met that need of my soul in a very deep way. Um, I felt that they could say what I wanted to say, but they had the vocabulary, which I didn't have. So um, I'm gone this way. I'm still at the evangelical church. I'm reading all these Catholic writers, and then a tragedy occurs. My, my beloved sister shockingly and tragically passes away. Um, I was an elementary school teacher at this time, and I, and I couldn't teach school. I was just too upset. But the only thing I could comfort me was uh, John Michael Talbot's music and Gregorian chant. I had found both of them. I don't, where did I find them? They came to me, I guess. Yeah. And they really comforted my soul in a most deep, profound way. And I had no, didn't know what a Kyrie and a Gloria and a Sanctus were. I mean, what is that? And I even, it was so funny. I even emailed them and said, where can I get the words to these songs? Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> of course, they didn't write me back. <laughs> the credo, you yeah. know, credo, you know, no, 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 no. you know, yeah. all that. Yeah. And, you know, it was so, wow, this is so awesome. I want to know the words. 
So I found the words online, of course, and I said, oh, this is amazing. I wonder who wrote these books. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Anyway, during my mourning and my grieving, those two were comfort. And I thought, you know, I need comfort, and I I can't go to my evangelical church for that because it's too, I don't want to be negative, but they, it just wasn't a quiet place per se. So I think I know, I know of a Catholic church where they're sort of charismatic. I've heard about them. I'll go to St. Timothy's and see what happens. So I went to St. Timothy's in Toronto, sat in the pew. Jesus met me so powerfully, put his arms around me, I felt. And I felt there's something different about this place. What is different about this Catholic church? It's different from other churches and groups that I've ever been to. What's different? They were having, a, I saw a poster on the wall about a course on contemplative prayer and the writings of St. Francis de Sales. And basically they were following the book by Ralph Martin on uh, fulfillment of all desire, which covers the contemplative prayer and the, and the spiritual life from many, many different saints and paralleling and dovetailing with each other. And so I went to this, I said to my wife, I need to go to this course. And, I, and she says, you can't go to this course because they're Catholic. I said, so what's wrong with that? She says, it's false doctrine. I don't, we don't pray to dead people. Mary the saints. Right, 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 right. And she was pretty angry about it. Right. I said, I don't care. I'm going. So I started going on Tuesday evenings once a week. And I didn't know, and they had mass before. And I didn't know what mass was. I'd never been to mass. What is mass? You know, I don't know to stand up or you sit down. What do you do? Neil, I just followed around and I thought this is a quite amazing. But what was most amazing was during the consecration and during the elevation, particularly when, you know, after the priest said, this is my body and this is my blood, etc. Um, I started having deeper revelations of Jesus and I, I saw him in my mind's eye, in my imagination, in my heart, that there he was in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist, there's Jesus Christ. There he is. He's there. I had known about the Father, God the Father, from Jewish background, from Messianic. I knew about the Holy Spirit from charismatic environments. Of course, we knew about Jesus, but he wasn't as personal uh, other than, uh, and, and until I came into Mass, and there he was in the Eucharist, and I believed in the real presence. Wow. And my imagine, yeah, imagination, one time the altar was transformed into the crucifix, and there was Jesus on the cross. And another time I saw the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Another time I, I in my imagination, my, in my mind, God was giving me these, these consolations to draw me. I was seeing the high priest and the holy of holies with the glory cloud of God's presence as in the temple, tabernacle, sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. All these things during the during the consecration and elevation. So I said, I have to take. I'd love to take communion. They said, you can't. You're not Catholic. Yeah. I said, well, I could do two things. I could leave and say, okay, I'm not. You're not guys. I'm. I'm not good enough for you guys. Or I could see what God had. Right. I decided to honor the rules of the church. I would do the crossing of the arms and going forward for a blessing during during the communion. And of course, I'm still going to my evangelical church at the same time. But what was happening is the closer I would get to the Blessed Sacrament as the Eucharist, the minister of extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, or the priest would hold the Eucharist, I would be shaking and trembling and weeping as I would get closer and closer. Uh, I was overwhelmed. It was so powerful. Wow. Incredible. There's Jesus. You know? And, um, And so somebody said, why don't you check out, you know, Catholic television just for fun? So I picked up Salt and Light here and EWTN. EWTN, I began to be hooked on the journey home Monday night with Marcus Grodi, which is still on TV. And my wife and I were incidentally on the show a year ago. Yeah, which is so cool. And Mother Angelica on Tuesday nights. And I couldn't believe that these Catholics were so full of joy and love and peace. And there was no performance or harshness or legalism or rigidity, but just grace and love and joy. And I'm so drawn. And I came to the point for a while that somebody said, why don't you try RCIA? So I did one-on-one because I I was already a strong believer in the Lord anyway. And every time we'd um, cover 
a Catholic distinctive like the Blessed Mother or Saint of Purgatory or the sacraments. I believed. I just believed it was true. Wow. And I finally came to the point where I said, I have to make a decision here because I know this. I'm too drawn. This is too beautiful. It's too glorious. It's too holy. It's too rich. It's too magnificent. And it, it feeds my gut like nothing's ever fed me before. I've been through charismatic experiences, which were glorious and wonderful, and I loved them still. But there was nothing like this. There was, there was something deeper and more profound and more powerful. Mm-hmm. And it was all found in the Eucharist, which is still a central. The Eucharist is so very central to us, more than anything in the whole Catholic Church. And I, I could talk about that, but I'm not going to right now because of time. But <laughs> I finally had to make a choice. And I said to God, you know, you know, the Mass would say, I'm not worthy to receive you. Only say the word and I shall be healed. That was the old, old wording. I was saying, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you. Only say the word and I shall become Catholic. <laughs> no joke. Yeah. True. So, and I so and I felt like God was saying, just go, just do it. I felt the intercession of the Carmelites, the Scouts Carmelite saints in this regard. And um, I said to my wife, I am becoming Catholic. And she said, well, whatever, I'll go with you anyway, even though it's false doctrine and everything. <laughs> and I did. Uh, we ended up going to the Lift Jesus Higher Rally and the, uh, during the Adoration and the Divine Mercy Chaplet. My wife herself had her own revelation of Jesus there. Oh, and wow. she, who's a Pentecostal Bible College graduate, very anti-Catholic, uh, decided she needed to come into the church. So she started to bang the door to get in, you know. <laughs> she emailed Cardinal Collins and she was doing everything she could to get in. How do I get in, you know? And she finally did too, about six months after I did. Wow. So that was that was all 10 years ago. So we've been a Catholic for 10 years, Catholics a, for 10 years. That's so. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it, you know, it's like that verse where Jesus says, you know, you, you know, to whom you, will you also go away? You know, that discourse of the, the bread of life discourse right in the in body of yeah. my flesh and drinks my blood. Will you also go away? And the disciples said, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I feel like the Catholic Church, through Jesus incarnate, incarnate, internationality, if I can use that term, and his real presence are the words, so to speak, in my soul of eternal life. And where will I go, you know? Right. And it's all dovetailed and corrected into Carmelite spirituality, of course, as you know. Right. And and also and also my Jewishness, because um, you know I began to see that the Catholic Church has uh, Jewish roots, as I mentioned before. The Catechism talks about it, the liturgy, the prayers, the music, the Gregorian, specifically the Latin Mass. I have to say, mm-hmm. and the Gregorian chant is very, very Jewish in its roots. It is. You know, praying. <laughs> Yeah, the Orthodox Jews, you know, they pray toward the east, at Orientum, and they, it, it, that's what they do. And and they, they, the Orthodox Jews pray for the dead. The Orthodox Jews believe that the dead can pray for us. Wow! Uh, so it is. It's amazing, you know. So there's so many things that in, in Catholic theology and Catholic um, expression and furniture of the Church have come from Jewish, its Jewish roots. So that made total sense to me that Catholicism is very Jewish yeah, and Carmelite and Eucharistic yeah, and everything. So, <laughs> so here I, we are. That's awesome. 10 hey, years later. I, yeah. I, I wanted to ask okay. you, so, um, so going back, mm-hmm. so what is it that like, as, as a Jew, was there something in your in your spiritual life that really resonated when you came to encounter Carmel and the and the Carmelite spirituality or was it um or or was that more something that you came to love and appreciate through uh more so when you got connected with the Toronto Airport uh Christian fellowship and like more like uh pentecostalism style prayer um i think i think the the Charismatic. I won't. It's not. Wasn't uh, charismatic is really a limiting term when it came to the Toronto Airport and the stuff that we were doing. Uh, when it came to intercession, like prophetic intercession, hearing from God and praying accordingly, 
not just having a prayer meeting or or experiencing uh, Jesus very deeply, the Holy Spirit very deeply, more than just a loud prayerful thing, but a quiet, more silent prayerful kind of uh, place, uh, you know, the prayer of quiet. Uh, they, they experience that there. And I think oh, it wow. became a perfect segue. Yeah, they do. Uh, they became a perfect segue to uh, learning about where, so to speak, where that was invented. And that was partially through the, through the supernatural revelation that the Lord gave our blessed uh, St. Teresa, mm-hmm. our Holy Mother, St. Teresa, um, of all those, those experiences that she verbalized and wrote down in her book, The Way of Perfection and, and the Interior Castle, and which St. John of the Cross did in, in the Set uh, of Carmel and the Spiritual Canticle, etc. But, but they resonate very uh, deeply with Jewish spirituality. For one thing, it's scriptural. Uh, I love how many times John of the Cross quotes scripture. So there was one thing there. The other thing is um, the, the, the way they think is also very Jewish. And there's a, a Jewish mystical side of things okay. uh, that both of them have inherited. You know, Teresa's background has, was Jewish anyway her, on her father's side. And there's, there's uh, some discussion that John of the Cross's father also it was a converso or that he was Jewish too. So, Oh, wow. Okay. There's, yeah. There's, there's that kind of thinking. And it, well, if the Holy spirit's involved, he, he will Im- impregnate, if I can use that term, spirituality or people's hearts and where they're searching him and you'll find parallels everywhere. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because of the Jewish mystical tradition and this, uh, and the, and the, and, and you can see in scriptures and in Jewish writings, it parallels very nicely with Carmelite spirituality. So for sure. And also because I was really looking for deeper revelation of God and looking for Jesus more deeply. And as I mm-hmm. said before, Carmel provided the vocabulary of the word, words that I could did not have. They said it for me. Yeah. yeah so it uh, resonated very strongly. And uh, then you bring the Eucharist along with that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's one whole package you yeah. know it's not like step segment okay this is eucharistic spirituality sacramental theology and this is the spiritual theology no it's one yeah it's all one exactly and, uh, so that's what it's yeah yeah and i i believe it's all very jewish so i don't have a problem with any of it i don't feel like i'm being disloyal mm. yeah, to yeah. my culture and my heritage in that way so yeah yeah, no, that's that's so cool. I I find it so interesting. Like for us as Carmelites, um, even in our rule, the rule makes it very clear, the rule of St. Albert, you know, that we are called to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. I mean, that right. that that is an incredibly Jewish thing, right? Like that's right out of scripture. Sure. You know what I mean? It's from the Psalms. Yeah. So I mean, right. looking at, at Carmel, I could understand as a Jew seeing that as a as a safe place, you know, for yourself spiritually, because it's like, they love the scriptures. We love the scriptures. You know, I wanted to also hop back, um, and ask you with regards to, uh, a comment you had made online and, and throughout this interview and in, and in our previous recording, um, and I, and I felt it was really important that people hear your thoughts on this. Um, you had stated in your interview on the choices we face with Peter Herbeck that your journey was greatly revelatory in nature. Um, on a recent post on Facebook, you made a pretty bold statement uh, saying that most Jews come to the church through supernatural revelations. Um, can you dig into that for a sec? Yeah, well, because Jews like Muslims, and I'll, I shouldn't talk about Muslims, but I'll just talk about Jews, have been generally inocul- inoculated against the gospel. Um, in Jewish Jewish thinking, as far as the Jewish people are concerned, you know, you can't be a Jew and a Christian at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. So you're going to find that Jews are not going to be too open to hearing about Jesus other than a cultural experience or whatever. So in order for a Jewish person, who especially steeped in Judaism, which I was, to actually come to Jesus, there had to be some kind of supernatural breakthrough to do that. And what we found in the testimonies, uh, I'll talk about Catholics particularly. There, if you look on, look for the testimonies of Jews who become Roman Catholic, let's say that, 
I think mean, I have a friend of mine actually who's Jewish who became a Byzantine Catholic. The same kind of thing. There were supernatural revelations um, about the Eucharist, um, about the cross, about um, the church. Now, here's a case in point. So there's this famous, this one uh, young man named Herman Cohen, who's a discalced, a discalced Carmelite priest. He's actually a, a venerable, I think. Oh, wow. He, yeah, he, I think he's a venerable. He um, was, a, was a concert pianist in the 1800s, brilliant man. A pupil of Liszt, but very, very hedonistic and very worldly. Did everything in the world you could think of. Needed a job. Got hired by this bishop in France somewhere. I forget where. And he said, fine, I'll take this job. And the bishop took a chance with him because he's not a Catholic, you know. He wants him to lead his choir. And so he does. And it, there's a Marian festival and they're singing these Marian hymns. In the middle of conducting these Marian hymns, he is so overcome by the Holy Spirit in his heart and his mind. He starts sobbing and weeping and has a revelation of his sins and repents of his sinfulness and becomes a Roman Catholic. He becomes a priest. He becomes a discalced Carmelite priest. Wow. This is Roman Cohen. Another one is uh, Israel Zoli, who was the chief rabbi of Rome during World War II. Uh, if you know World War II, you know, the Jews were uh, rounded up by the Nazis for extermination. And Pope Pius XII, blessed Pope Pius XII, um, was working with uh, Rabbi Zoli to rescue as many Jews as possible. And so uh, the rabbi was getting gold bullion from Pope Pius to purchase Jews' lives, wow. as well as uh, ferrying them into the Vatican and convents and monasteries everywhere. You know, the, the Pope... Pope, blessed Pope Pius has gotten such a bad rap. It's such a lie because more Jews were rescued by Roman Catholics during the World War II than any other people group in all of the continent. Yeah. Uh, 850,000 Jews were rescued, but Pope Pius himself did it quietly and clandestinely and behind the scenes, you know? Right. Anyway, the point is, the point, and this is the case in point, after the war, Rabbi Zoli is in his synagogue on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, and who shows up in his synagogue, which makes sense anyway? Jesus shows up. He has a vision of Jesus, personally. Jesus showed up in his synagogue. Wow. In his synagogue. And uh, what, could, what could Rabbi Zoli do? But he became a Roman Catholic. <laughs> he changed his name to Eugenio, got to the synagogue. And you can tell that he... But Pope Pius was a godly man, as far as the Jews were concerned, because why would he change his name to Eugenio and become a Catholic as the chief rabbi? Wow. So that was another one. Um, then there's the two Ratisbon brothers. Um, and uh, and I, I wish I could remember their first names. But again, one of them was a lawyer, very skeptical. friend of his said, you know what, why don't you just try it? Here, we're, we're a miraculous medal. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so he was visiting a Catholic church, and what happens? The Blessed Virgin Mary comes to him. Yeah. Another one is Roy Schumann, and Roy Schumann is a current person, a modern-day person, is an author and a speaker. Has written two fabulous books: one called "Salvation is from the Jews," and one called "Honey from the Rock: Our Testimonies of Jewish Catholics." He's in his office. He's a Harvard University professor, and he hears a voice calling his name. And he says to the voice. I don't care who you are. You could be Buddha, you could be Muhammad, you could be Krishna, but as long as you're not Jesus. And sure enough, you guess who, you know? <laughs> and he's walking, along, he's walking along the beach one day, and the Blessed Virgin Mary shows up to him. Wow. So you know, there's, these are just three cases, including my own, where Jews have had deep revelations of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, has come to them. And, uh, Powerful revelations because uh, we we almost need them in order to make the, the faith leap if we've come from traditional Jewish backgrounds. Okay. Because Jews are traditionally inoculated against the gospel, as I said before. Yeah. So you were saying that that Jews, in a lot of ways, really need that kind of extra supernatural kind of push that in, intellectual. I'll use this word loosely, con an intellectual conversion is not as easily attainable for a Jew. It has to be something 
almost completely holistic, almost like a Saul de Paul kind of experience. Is that what yeah, you're saying? I, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Now, because but, intellectually, sorry enough to intellectually, I mean, there are Jews who have come to faith intellectually too. I mean, it's been reasonable for them, but but coupled with the reasonableness, and that's actually true for anybody, to be honest with you. There has to be a revelation of the heart and the mind of who Jesus is, because ultimately God is is known by our mind, but even more, He's known in our in our innermost person, in our soul, in our spirit. That's where we really know Him and and understand Him and have an experience with Him is that our inner person. Yeah. So either way, whether you've come through an intellectual, reasonable way, or you've come through a supernatural, revelatory way, through a vision or an experience, either way, it, it, you still it still has to reach you to the point where you you make you have a um, a, a, a revelation. I hate to use the word revelation again, but a sense or an understanding, whatever word you want to use, of the truth of it all. Right. Right. And that's true of Catholics who've been baptized Catholics and have lived all their times in the ch- life in the church, so they've had a conversion. Yeah, yeah. That's, so it's true for everybody, to be honest with you. But yeah. for some of us, it's extraordinary. For sure. For and sure. so that's what it was for many of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of in that in that space where, um, like I'm I'm the firstborn Catholic of my entire family. Everybody oh, else really? in my family are converts. Um, so um, everything from basic atheism, you know, uh, into Presbyterianism, you know, um, they were all over the place. Um, but I'm the firstborn Catholic. But I mean, I grew up in the faith, but I really needed that moment. Um, I had my my moment of, I guess, a reversion moment or a conversion experience, whatever you want to call it, um, when I was 13. You know, and I can I can legitimately say that I needed that experience to be able to propel me forward, you know, and right. and I was talking with with some of the other guys, I think within the last few weeks and saying, like, if all if all the Catholic faith was was this like dry moral rigorism and it was, you know, even even intellectually, philosophically, it was, you know, deep and beautiful. I don't think that would be enough for me to just give my whole entire life to that. Like I needed to be able to know God in a real way, um, to right. encounter him, to be able to say, like, this is something that I'm willing to lay down my life for. Right. You know, and and I think Carmel for me has been an incredible place where that's uh, gone even deeper where that experience of God has gone deeper and it, and it, and it contextualizes the sacramental theology of the church, the the systematic theology of the church and the spiritual theology of the church altogether. And along with philosophy and all of that, it just makes sense. You know, like if, if you don't have that kind of central point of, the the depth and the beauty of God's love for you as a person, as you know, as a adopted son or daughter of God, like everything else kind of loses its it it, it it's missing. I, I it's missing so much. So yeah, I I found that for me, Carmel I joined Carmel for the first time when I was eighteen years old. And, um, that experience itself, you know, I needed that because, you know, you're going into, you know, those adult years, you're trying to figure out who you are and what you believe, you know, having that place and that importance of prayer and that time spent with a God who is real, you know, and who, and who loves us, you know, St. Teresa makes that very clear, a loving conversation with the one we know who loves us, you know, without that, I don't think, I don't know where I'd be. Right. You know, so I wanted to ask you in particular, so coming back to that whole question of revelation and how Jews experience Christ, you know, there, there is that question of how do we actually be effective witnesses to Jews. And I I know we, we had talked in our, our previous recording about Nostra Aetate and how 
while it was very clear in Nostra Aetate that, you know, we should still be effective witnesses to the Jews, but still on, you know, still honoring them and, and, and honoring their past and honoring their experience that they've had. Despite that, uh, that kind of thing said in Nostra Aetate, there's been things in, in modern uh, times where there's been some confusion in the church as to, is there, mm-hmm. is there even a reason to witness to Jews um, like does the covenant that they have, is it still valid and, and is it salvific, you know, questions of those kinds of things, or like, wh- why should we, you know, why should we witness if it's not, if the mission to the Jews was not foreseen and not necessary? What, what is your take on that? How do we as Catholics effectively be witnesses to our Jewish friends? Well, first of all, um, the uh, let's talk about the Catholic Church for a second. Uh, it, it's almost it, it's all, we, Catholics might have a harder time uh, witnessing to Jews in a sense because of the history of the past. And unfortunately, whether it's true or not, the memory is such that Jews in Europe, particularly even in um, in Russia, of course, that was mostly Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, or in Germany are Lutherans. But somehow, a lot of these Christian groups have had a bad uh, testimony, if I can say, to Jewish communities over the centuries. So actually witnessing to anybody, any Jewish person might be a challenge. So therefore, we and this is true of anybody, I think, we don't proselytize or target anybody. However, we do share our faith and we do witness to the Lord and we do witness to what our faith is to us. But, you know, just like St. Paul says, one person plants a seed, another waters, but it's the Lord who takes the increase. In other words, the Lord who gets the harvest. So the best thing we can do as far as Jewish people are concerned is, like you said, we love them, we respect them, we pray for them. And that's the most important thing of all, I think, is prayer and love and relationship. And allowing the Holy Spirit actually to do it. Now, some people said, well, you should be a little bit more direct and try to, you know, really, you know, invite them out to Mass and all kinds of things. Well, that may work for some people. But I think generally the best thing to do is to pray and to love and ask God to open the doors of opportunities to share. And the best thing we can do to do that is to live our faith in public. Because Jewish people are very um, discerning. And they can smell hypocrisy a mile away. Yeah, And if a person is a fake believer, I hate to use the word fake, but an, an, an inconsistent believer, it's going to be harder to be convincing to anybody, let alone a Jewish person, that you have something to sell, quote unquote. Right. Um, so they will, if they, like, for example, to me, it was these two guys who had a testimony. I said, what, basically in the synagogue, they were Jews themselves, but they were believers. And I didn't know that. I said, what, got, what makes you guys tick? What is it about you that's different? You seem to have joy, you have peace, you have love. What is it? And they told me, Jesus. You see, and, that's, and that spoke to me. Um, and I think that'll speak to anybody when you love your neighbor as yourself. And like Paul says, uh, like, sort of like, you know, like uh, Jesus says too, you know, you love, you pray for those who use you, you love those who abuse you, 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 those who may react strongly negatively against you, you still love and pray for them. And if a person is offensive or difficult, if you still love them and pray for them, that'll speak like nothing else, more than you can even preach any word about Jesus, your life will do it. And I think that's one of the best ways that a Catholic or any Christian can do as far as the Jewish people are concerned, especially because it is sensitive. Because I said before, we don't want to proselyte, we don't target, but we just live. We wait yeah. for the Holy Spirit to give an opportunity. We share of the life, we share of the light that's within us, and we let God do the work in a sense. At the same time, the truth is, the Jewish people are still the chosen people of God. We don't know really what's going to happen at the end of times. And that covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still in intact, in effect, for them, but at the same time, we would love them to be part of the new covenant. And that's, again, not for us to, to make happen, but if we live our lives 
then it'll happen. And I think the last thing I'll say about it is if we look at Romans 11, in chapter 11 of Romans, St. Paul has this real burden in chapter 9 and 10 for his own people that he wishes he himself were accursed, that they would know Christ. That's what he says. You believe that, eh? Constant sorrow, constant grief, he says, for my own people. And he says that God basically gave him the ministry to the Gentiles, to the nation, in order to provoke his own brethren to jealousy. You know, in other words, that, that these Jews would see that these Gentile Christians living godly lives and holy lives and have given up idolatry, and they believe in the God of Israel, and they have the scriptures, and they've got the Messiah of Israel, that they will say, what makes you tick? What is it about you? Well, I've got your Messiah. I believe in your Messiah. What do you, you know, that kind of thing, to make them jealousy. Paul says to provoke them to jealousy. And instead of provoking them to jealousy, the Jewish people, unfortunately, over the centuries, not 100% of the time, have been simply provoked. Wow. Not to jealousy, but to provoke. So I think, and then Paul says that all Israel shall be saved. And then it says, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and I think the fullness of the Gentiles has been interpreted by the churches when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, then the Jews will be saved. I would like to interpret it differently. I would like to say that when the Jew, when the Christian, Gentile Christian, achieves their fullness in the Lord, and when they completely fulfill what they're supposed to be, then Israel will come in, the Jewish person will come in. If the church acts like the church, or the Christian acts like the Christian, and they're around the Jewish person, then that Jewish person will come in. And that's how I interpret that. I, I, and if any of your listeners are really interested in, in this, whole pro, this whole mystery, and that's what it is, it's a mystery of the Jews, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the ones to read and meditate on. Because Paul's central purpose, I said, for his ministry to the nations was ultimately for his own people to come to faith. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the, are the scriptures for that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I guess I I wanted to ask a couple last questions. Um, so we had we had had the question uh, from one of our listeners, um, who had asked, "How did your family respond mm. to um, your experience of of coming into into the Christian faith?" Um, we'd kind of glossed over it, but are you willing to share again right. a little bit That's about what that was like for you at that moment? Well, what, let me just tell you a story. What happened is the night that I became a believer, so to speak, um, this is before I was baptized, but I believed I was given a Hebrew English New Testament, which I still have. And I brought it home and my sister told my parents, and that was the beginning of sorrows for me. Wow. The anger, the shock. My mother would sit in front of me, God rest your soul, weeping and saying, how can you do this? You've put a knife in my heart. It's almost like Mary, you know, a yeah. sword shall pierce your own soul, but yeah. not the same way. Yeah. But she said to me, you put a knife in my heart. You know, and my father was so angry. He did everything he could to get me away from Jesus. Uh, they sent me to rabbis and psychiatrists because they didn't understand, and they were so hurt and so scared, you know, their own son, you know, has become a Christian, you know, this is horrible, how could that happen? Right. And they were very dismayed, very angry, very hurt, Um, and uh, there was one point where my father just stopped talking to me uh, for for several decades. Wow. And, uh, but the good news is, my mother on her deathbed came to faith two days before she died. Oh, wow. Yeah, and my sister also, before she passed on, like I'd say 10 years before she passed on, she became a believer too. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So they reacted very strongly, very... Now, not every Jewish family will react that way. Uh, Depending, it depends. Some of them will just shrug it off. Some of them will be mystified. But some will react very strongly, and it just depends on the family. It isn't... There isn't one way. Right. But generally speaking... Uh, for a Jewish person to believe in Jesus is is considered tra- being tra- like a traitor. You're considered a traitor. Right. You're a renegade. You're a convert. You have let you betrayed us. And um, and so that's hard sometimes because you know it's not true. You know. Right. But 
but you have forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. You know, like Jesus right. said on the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know, know what they do. They don't know, they don't see it. Yeah. And like you were saying before, the context, like the historical context of the experience that so many Jews have had with, with Catholics and with other other people in the Christian faith, I mean, it's understandable that they would have a lot of struggles. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not something yeah. that, yeah, it just makes sense. It just makes sense that they would struggle. So, um, so yes. That, can I interject with you? That's partly the enemy's tactic, by the way is to keep them out of the kingdom of God. Mm. He does not want Jews in the kingdom. Because you know what Paul says in Romans 11 again? He says, if the, if the putting aside of them, the Jews, is wealth, rich spiritual riches for the Gentiles, the nations, the Christians, what will their inclusion be but life from the dead? Right. In other words, Paul likens Jews coming into the church as a kind of revival, as a kind of resurrection. He said it'll be life from the dead. Wow. Because the church is not fully the church. Uh, forgive me for saying this. It is the church, because the church of Jesus, it depends on him more than us. But the church in its fullest identity and expression is the church where it's made up of Israel and the Gentile, Israel and the nations. It's mm. made up of Jews and Gentiles. Right. That's the, whole, that's the body of Christ, equally together as one. And that's the huge miracle. I go to St. Paul again, Ephesians chapter 2, where he talks about this middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles broken down. So the Jews and Gentiles are one in the body together, can worship together, our brothers and sisters now, right. in one body, in one family. It's a huge miracle. And the enemy does not want that to happen. Why? Because what does Jesus say? That he says, you will know, they will know, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love, the love yeah. you have for one another. Yeah. And if there's, there's animosity, yeah. then you see there's no unity, and then there's no Jews will now come in, and this just makes you know the enemy pretty happy, yeah, because you know, yeah. Jesus isn't glorified by it. Right, right. Wow, that's true. I wanted to, to I guess, end with a, a kind of a big question. So since you converted, you converted, uh, or I... I know you don't like that word. Uh, I don't like the term converted, <laughs> but we're all converts. Like you're a convert too. Yeah, yeah, true, right, true. Um, but uh, yeah, like, since you came into the the it's church, like, that was in 2009, yeah. right? Right. I became I became Roman Catholic, or I came into full communion, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Go on. In 2009. So since then, what's different for you? Like, what what has God done well, since then for you? And in, in your- <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one thing. I can't get away with sin like I did before. <laughs> My conscience used to be that you pray, you sin, or whatever it is. You pray, you know, the blood of Jesus forgives you. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. But as yeah. Catholic, I know I have to go to confession. Right. I have the Blessed Sacrament. I have the Eucharist in front of me. Can I take Eucharist if I'm in sin? Yeah. I don't get away. You don't get away with things as much. Okay, that's number one. Number two. It's given me um, the Mass. I'll tell you the Mass. The Mass is a prayer for me. It's a place of supreme contemplation, of being in the presence of God. Whereas before, and with all due respect, I love charismatic experiences, but we would try to be loud or try to call the Holy Spirit down so we could really meet God. We'd say, we want to be in your presence, and we want to be in your presence. We want to be in your presence, <laughs> Give us your presence. You know, really, there was this intensity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we don't. We just come into mass, and he's there. You know, yeah. he's he's there. The mass in the liturgy takes care of us. Jesus is, is in the prayer. He is the liturgy. He is the Eucharist. He's there. We don't have to strive and struggle. Just be and relax, and just let just let ourselves go. And in his he's the, in his presence, and we have the real presence. So that to me was incredibly helpful. The other thing that was helpful was the magisterium. I didn't have to think of theology anymore. I remember saying, what do I believe? How do I articulate <laughs> what I believe? Right. How do I, what do I talk about the resurrection? I believe the resurrection. What does that mean? How do I articulate that? Thankfully, we have the catechism of the Catholic Church. We have the magisterial teaching of the Church that gives us what a relief. I mean, what a rest. Yeah. And, and we just 
so it, it's a huge thing. And the, and the other thing too, I'll say is I found God bless his holy name. The Lord Jesus Christ is more personal to me now as my personal Lord and savior than he has been ever in a sense that I, he's, he's so present inside of me mm. in my consciousness, uh, especially after communion. And you see the, the Carmelite spirituality basically articulates all of that for us <laughs> very well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so they go hand in glove. So, so, um, you know, that's one thing. The other thing, you know, there's so many more blessings I could talk about, you know, confession. is amazing. I love confession. I mean, first time I went to confession, you know, I confessed all my sins since I was baptized, which you know, I was 20 years old. So that was quite a lot of years, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it was like the relief of the guilt was gone. Like the guilt was broken, you know, Yeah. my conscience. Um, and uh, the other surprise of surprise, I was ordained a permanent deacon last May. I mean, that's the craziest <laughs> story of all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we so, need a whole show for that one. <laughs> so yeah, straight out of Judaism and <laughs> into the I clerical say, what am state. I, doing here? I said, this, "This is crazy. What do I know about Catholic liturgy? Yeah. And what do I know about being part of the hierarchy of pope, bishop, yeah. priest?" deacon what do i know about that yeah. <laughs> what yeah. am i doing here <laughs> yeah. so that God so that so when did that happen for you when were you ordained last may may 2018 and that was done in toronto at the cathedral yeah yeah, yeah st michael's cathedral yeah. and, and then my my diaconal journey is also one of uh great uh, i don't have time but it was part of great struggle and great revelation and basically what the bottom line what was happening is uh my every every weakness and every fear and every uh fault and every issue of my own soul is laid bare through this diaconal formation process if i can say that yeah and what i thought was a, a correct way of thinking and doing things was not right. uh, the way I would conduct myself uh, in certain ways in ministry before was, was totally different than the way I am now. And the diaconal ministry has done that. It's almost, it's almost like, you know, marriage and or, or, or holy orders are sacraments of service, but they're also sacraments of salvation. Yeah. In other words, God uses our marriages save us in a sense that <laughs> deals with our issues where we get to repent of, you know, the iron sharpening iron kind of thing. Your wife sharpens you, Amen. you deal with, you know, your, your own stuff is exposed, right? Yeah, very well, much. Well, same with ministry, ministry. Yeah, the ordination is not just so you can have, stand up there and preach a nice homily and look good in an, in an alb in a, in a, in a, in a Dalmatic. Yeah. Or you know, be able to baptize. No, it's about it's about dealing with your own soul and and Jesus ministering to you and showing you about you to get you to heaven. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's uh, and that shocked me. I mean, I when I went before I was in the, the action, I said I've been in ministry. I know how to pray to for people. I know how to talk to them about Jesus. I know how to tell them about their problems and how to get them out. Of course, you just you know, this kind of, this thinking, and it's totally wrong. It's not it at all. <laughs> it was like my whole world was turned upside down. On top of that, it was my fears, my anxieties, my weaknesses, you know, my confidences in myself were exposed and shattered. And the Lord basically said, has been saying to me, which he's been trying to say to me all these years anyway, it's not about you. Get out of the way. Yeah. Let me do, let me be the center of attention. Let yeah. me be glorified. It's not about you. It's about my people and it's about me. It's not about you. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what I'm constantly learning about. And um, it, I don't think it'll ever end, but, yeah. but it's been magnified <laughs> yeah. through, through the formation process and the holy orders. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. what it is. Awesome. It's quite interesting, actually. That's awesome. So, so not only did you enter the church, but you've become a permanent deacon. You've taken right. your final and definitive promises in the Sacred Correct. Order of Discalced Carmelites. I mean, you're right. you're just like you're just gone from like zero to eleven very quickly, <laughs> you know, in life. It's amazing how okay. God has done that for you. I was actually just thinking about the fact that you had said earlier in the interview the fact that you had had this desire to be a rabbi, and yeah. 
Do you think that you becoming a deacon, that the Lord calling you there was in his way fulfilling that desire for you? Wow. I've never, nobody's ever said that to me. And I wonder if that's it because a rabbi really means teacher. Um, And what I do more than anything in my ministry is preach and teach. Of course, I've always done that, but you know, it's quite possible. It is. Yeah, Yeah. There's something about that because you know, it isn't just preaching and teaching, which is a big part of it. It's just being with people, being present to people and loving them and caring for them and ministering to them and, and seeing them be blessed and, 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 and encouraged on their own faith, just like little encounters, little words. And it's so weird because now that I'm ordained, it's not like I'm getting any respect because I'm not getting any respect at all. Just you, the opposite. I'm you can't. You can't respect. get no respect. Is that what you're saying? Can't get no respect. No, no. I'm. <laughs> no, no. I can tell you. You know, they they ask me. Anyway, I won't say it. But the point is, I'm I, I'm lower than lower than the low kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But because of the ordination, the the effect on people, like giving the blessing and the sign of the cross, people get so blessed and so encouraged and they they'll say thank you they'll just feel so touched or they'll come out of mass and they're they're weeping and they're they're touched in their hearts you know yeah um it's not it's not to do with me it's the lord using it uh to touch people so long you know I, i'm going giving a long answer for <laughs> but it's interesting maybe that's maybe that's true because yeah. I, the truth is chris all these years i've avoided ordination of any kind yeah and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was kinda, God and my wife. That's right. My God and my wife wouldn't let me go. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. No, I just, the, the fact that you, it, it's so abundantly clear that you have that, that heart of, of a father. Um, but mm-hmm. you also have that, that desire to teach, you know, and that mm-hmm. you have also that connection with the, um, the association of Hebrew Catholics, right? Like right. you also are right. involved in that too. Like mm-hmm. what a cool opportunity that is to be able to minister mm-hmm. and share your faith as, you know, coming from the Jewish roots uh, into right. the Catholic faith. How cool that is. That it's almost like a, I don't know, like a redeemed, you know, uh, rabbinical ministry. I don't know how to, I don't know what the word would be. It's very interesting. Sounds yeah. good. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll accept it for what somebody like. <laughs> will <look> like it. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, Hey, thanks so much for, for chatting with me tonight. Thanks. I think this was a better one. Than the last one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hey, I could hear you this time. So <laughs> I can hear you too. Yeah. You're talking, which is great because last time I didn't let you say anything. <laughs> but it was still good. It was still good. Awesome. Well, okay. so let's just end uh, with this. So, where can people find you on the internet? Okay. If you um, are, the email address is ahc Toronto at gmail.com. I'll say it again. A-H-C-Toronto at gmail.com. And that's the Association of Hebrew Catholics Toronto. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And that's something, that's a ministry that you run um, or that you're a part of, correct? That you do like events every month. Is that how? Yes. Every month at Blessed Trinity Parish, which which is our parish, we run a month session and I'm not too, I'm not the only one who does the teaching. We have people coming in, professors from the seminary. We have Jewish people who become Catholic, giving their testimony. Uh, we have different things, uh, different people talking about the Jewish roots, talking about Catholic-Jewish issues, relations, historical and uh, personal up to this day. Um, it's quite, people love it. And um, it also gives me opportunities to go out to parishes where I, talk about the Passover, or I talk about um, the ancient, one of my favorite talks that I've got, I've got a three-part series on the ancient first cent- the first century Jewish wedding in the Mass. That sounds so good. The Mass is a Jewish wedding. I love that one. That is so- and I bring Carmelite spirituality into it, of course. <laughs> so um, that one's fun. I'm doing one this Wednesday on St. Therese. Oh, nice. For a group of 
Theresians in our in our Paris. I don't even know if they need Boston for that, but they're <laughs> going to be hearing about Saint Therese. Theresians are going to be hearing about Saint Therese. They know about Saint Therese, but you know, thinking about her life from a Carmelite point of view is what, is what I'm going to do that for. That's so amazing. all these talks that I gave are all laid around either Carmelite spirituality or Jewish roots of Catholicism or something like that. Amazing, amazing. That's so great. That's so great. Awesome. Well. Thank you again very much for chatting. We'll uh, we'll definitely try to get in contact soon. We had talked about doing this in an, uh, on the last recording, but talking about the Jewish roots of the diaconate ministry, I yeah. thought that was incredibly yeah. deep. Maybe we can do another uh, interview where we talk yeah. about that. Yeah, that would be great because I can talk about that from the, both the temple and the synagogue roots that sounds of so the good. diaconal ministry. Yeah. That sounds so good. So good. Okay. Awesome. Well, I guess we'll just end it here. Thanks again so much for chatting. Um, but uh, stay on the line and we'll uh, we'll continue chatting for a couple seconds afterwards. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We really want to know your thoughts on the topics discussed during today's podcast, as well as your questions and topics you'd like us to explore in the future. So please follow us on Facebook at Theology of the Buddy and come hang out with us. Please follow and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play to keep up on the great conversations with new episodes coming every Wednesday. We would also love if you would rate us and leave us a review wherever you are listening if you have not done so already. It'd really help us out. Next week, the boys will be chatting about the principle of the integral good and answering some listener questions. Until then, stay tratty!